Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Treks and Sci-Fi with Rico Dusty. The Grey Hot. Prepare to download my program into the autonomous emitter. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Rico. It is uh, podcast uh, number 172 for May the 4th. Yes, the merry month of May, May the 4th, 2008. Welcome to the show, everyone. Well, uh, I hope everyone's had a good week uh, since I last talked to you. Uh, it's uh, It's been rather busy for me this past week. I took a little trip to New York uh, for work and uh, just... Hey, you, when you do that, and that was part of the week, and then I went to work for the other part of the week, it turns into sort of uh, two weeks in one, it almost feels like. But it's a Sunday, and I'm podcasting again, so happy uh, about that, and uh, back to feeling a little more normal after all the traveling. Sometimes traveling just a short distance is even uh, a little bit more problem than traveling further. I mean, you still have to go through all the, get to the airport, park at the airport, you know, find your get to your flight and get on the plane, all that stuff. None of that changes, just the duration of the flight, I guess. So, But enough about all that. Lots of uh, geeky goodness and things coming up uh, this week on the podcast. Uh, we are going to be talking, the big subject for this week is going to be the excellent TV series from the 90s, Babylon 5. I've been meaning to do a, a podcast covering this great series, uh, one of my all-time favorite, uh, at least of the non-Trek sci-fi series. And uh, I've talked about it a few times off and on during the the run of the podcast, but I, I wanted to devote, uh, you know, it'll probably be a good half of this show this week about uh, Babylon 5 and what I think about it, maybe give you a few bits of information you hadn't heard before, play a few clips and, uh, and all of that. So that'll be coming up here in a little while. Uh, we're going to go uh, first into uh, news and uh, information, Trek and otherwise. What's going on in the world of sci-fi? Well, let's talk this week first instead of uh, Trek and, and movie news uh, and that, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the new uh, film, the big uh, first of, the, I think, the burst. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's my slub flub for the day. The uh, the big first of the blockbuster summer movies is out, Iron Man. Uh, it came out, uh, I guess, Thursday evening. They had some showings Thursday evening in my area. And uh, I, the real main opening day was Friday, May 2nd. Uh, we went, uh, uh, my older son just finished his, uh, this last, uh, or this year and whatever you want to call it, semester of college. Uh, Steve, congrats on another uh, year uh, done at uh, Michigan State University. 
did uh, okay, and he's happy. Actually, he's going to be going um, over the summer to school as well there, and he has a, a research job, so he's uh, he's really pretty pumped and pretty excited about that. So he's only going to have kind of a week off in between terms and then head back up. But uh, congrats, Steve. And uh, I just uh, wanted to say that because he uh, was home on Friday, and he and my younger son Eric and I and a friend uh, Mark, we all went off to uh, the local theater we usually go to for these big new movies, and it was uh, it was a bit of a madhouse on Friday night there. Lots of people uh, just kind of out and about, some going to the movies, some going and eating, restaurants, whatever. But uh, we went to the movie, uh, I think we had like an 8, 8.40-ish show or something that night, but not a, not a need for that kind of detail, I guess. But the movie is a couple hours long, and Robert Downey Jr., of course, is Iron Man. I, I just uh, will just kind of cut to the chase. I thought it was a great movie. I, I really, really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Iron Man, uh, even though I read comics quite a bit, Iron Man is not a character I've ever really followed very closely. Uh, I'm more into the mutants, the people who get special powers and abilities, I guess, more than the tech kind of uh, heavy Iron I, I don't know if he's really tech heavy, but I, I don't know. For some reason, Tony Stark and Iron Man's character never really interested me that much, but I do know him. I've read The Avengers, and he pops up in other comics from time to time, so I know that character, and I just thought they did a great job. Robert Downey Jr. just makes the movie. He really fits the part, I thought, uh, and there's just the right blending of sort of action and, and a little bit of comedy even and danger and uh, character you know elements and things and and the plot is is pretty straightforward uh, you know Stark Industries being this weapon producer and you know Iron Man this is sort of an origin story I'm not going to give away too much uh, all that stuff you pretty much see in the preview trailers that have been showing for quite a while but if you are at all a fan of this type of movie, of comic books to uh, movie translations, I, I highly urge you to go see this film. I'm probably going to have to go see it again because uh, a little bit of a, a word of warning, if you haven't seen it, or maybe if you have, maybe you saw this, but I guess they did one of these little tag-on, short little tiny clips or scenes at the very end after the credits roll. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, so we missed it, but I heard what the scene showed you. Uh, not a big deal, but uh, I, I want to go see it again. I wanted to go see the movie again anyway, and uh, this is another reason to go see it. So go check out uh, Iron Man, now showing in theaters, and is probably going to be doing a lot of business over the next few weeks. What's the latest on the new Star Trek movie? Let's find out. Well, as it has been for the last uh, few weeks, there's not a huge amount of news about the uh, Star Trek movie. Just some general comments. J.J. Uh, Abrams has been turning up a little bit in some interviews. Again, uh, he was at the Iron Man uh, premiere. There's an actor, one of the bad guys in the Iron Man movie, is actually has a small role as a, I think he's a Starfleet captain in the uh, the new Star Trek movie. Anyway, uh, J.J. has basically been saying again that the, the the film is sort of like if they had done the, the 1960s Star Trek series using modern-day, you know, techniques and technology and sort of updated, you know, it's kind of like if you were seeing Kirk and Spock in the original crew kind of for the first time, sort of his reimagining a little bit of that uh, time frame. And, he, you know, he continues to say that this movie will be a, a, a great film for people to see whether you are a Star Trek fan or not. He said there's there's plenty in here for the fans, but there's also a good movie as well. And he says Star Trek has really never been given 
he's been saying the the kind of treatment and care and probably budget uh, that they're going to you're <laughs> oh maybe two flubs today <laughs> sorry about that at least that we've uh, ever seen uh in this you know it, it kind of sounds a little bit like you know he's just kind of beating the drum already and uh it's a little bit surprising just because to me you know the movie's like a year away now i mean it's uh I'm guessing the way things are going to go is that they're going to kind of talk a lot about it over the summer because the the rumor was going around that we were going to see a little longer trailer sometime this summer with some of the with one of the films perhaps one of the big films coming out uh, possibly it was going to be Indiana Jones although I don't think that's going to happen now you know they're both Paramount movies but uh, since they pushed the the release date from Christmas time to May I don't know if we're going to still get a trailer and if we do I'm not sure when it's going to happen but. I have a feeling what will happen is just because it's the summer movie season, people will be talking about the Star Trek film and saying, yeah, it's coming next summer, it's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. But then there'll be kind of a lull through the fall towards the winter, and then it'll start to pick up again probably in early 2009 as we get closer to the release date as far as who they're talking to and what's going on. So, uh, But uh, it's still, you know, of course, sounding good. There's uh, a few other little things that have been popping up uh, news. Uh, Harrison Ford supposedly visited the set, uh, the Star Trek set. You know, Tom Cruise visited the set, Harrison Ford. uh, This, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams seems to have a pretty good, uh, you know, his little black book or his Blackberry or whatever list of, of people in Hollywood and stars and that that he knows and seems to be friends with. You know, he had dinner with George Lucas. Uh, it's uh, he's he's got a lot of contacts, so I, I can see him, especially if this Star Trek movie turns out to be all they're saying it is. I, I see J.J. Abrams having a very long and very uh, fruitful career in Hollywood due to this. So uh, we'll be keeping you uh, posted on future developments. Okay, we've got a uh, a special segment here. I want to play the first part of it. Uh, we've got another musical entry segment from Vartok. Uh, this is about a composer named Bear McCreary, uh, and uh, take it away, Vartok. Hello everyone, this is Vartok again with another music and sci-fi segment. For today's segment, I'm going to talk about Bear McCreary, the composer of all of the Battlestar Galactica music since the three-hour miniseries, which was composed by Richard Gibbs, which for Bear basically includes all of seasons one, two, and three, and the Razor movie. In today's part one of three segments, I'm going to cover Bear's early years in training and highlight some of my favorite tracks from season one. In upcoming podcast, I'll serve up season two and three and let Bear describe in his own words what goes into his process of composing for this award-winning television show and some background on the instruments and themes he uses to make his music so refreshing and original. By the way, this is Wander My Friends, track number 23 on the season one CD. Besides being the award-winning composer of Battlestar Galactica, 
He is also an accomplished accordion musician, pianist, and musical director. Bear also currently is the composer for Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and has composed music for 13 episodes of the 2000 season of Eureka. Now here from a 2005 interview on GeeksOn.com, Bears tells us how he knew music was in his future. I always wanted to write film music, and uh, I was like the uber film score nerd when I was a kid. I'd be like nine years old and go to see a movie in theaters and all my friends would come out talking about how cool it was and I'd be like, do you remember the music in that one part where the guy like does his little thing and the music, did... everyone looked at me like, what the hell? Bear was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on February 17, 1979 and is only 29 years old as of this podcast, an amazingly young age for a composer who has already achieved so much. He is a classically trained composer and musician, now living in Los Angeles, California. He studied under the famous composer Elmer Bernstein at the University of Southern California Thornton School of Music, located in L.A. Thornton is only one of two universities in the country to offer an undergraduate program in music industry, which also offers a comprehensive program in scoring for television and film. Bear has already composed scores for over 30 films, most of which you are probably not familiar with, but he is a rising star, and you can expect him to start appearing in more recognized movies in the future. Let's hear Bear talk about his early years. So I started writing music when I was in high school just on my own. The first film I scored... What was the first good film that you worked on? Well, let me start with... The first film I scored was one that didn't exist. I was in high school. I was 17. And I knew that I, I was always writing these little tunes. They were anywhere from four to ten minutes long. And I just wanted to see if I'd be able to score a film. And there was... I was growing up in Bellingham, Washington, so there weren't exactly a lot of filmmakers there. So I wrote a screenplay that was like 40 pages, and I just visualized every shot, every line of dialogue in my head. And then I spent a year scoring this thing. I wrote 80 minutes of music. And I just did it after school, every day, weekends. Like, I just became obsessed over this thing. But I wanted to see if I could actually keep like some thematic ideas together and write something that held together after 80 minutes so that was the first thing i ever did and and of course what was the movie called by the way it was called the amazing saga of george the amazing saga you know what? you're the first person to ever ask me that well, yeah it was about a, it was about a, it was a guy that uh, lived in this uh planet where it was the whole planet was one city named george not and the uh, aliens invade, and hilarity ensues, and he rescues the princess, and the whole thing. You know, oh. it was a thing. I mean, it was basically an, it was an excuse for a bunch of action set pieces, everything I could possibly conceive of, because that's what that's I really wanted to score. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if aliens invade, and then I need a I need a spaceship dogfight scene, and then what else do I need? You know, and you know, aliens invade. Basically, yeah, spaceship dogfights and and Battlestar. Since then, I. I'd like to think my music has improved a little bit because I scored the entire thing with my little Yamaha keyboard that I had. After Thornton, Bear's practical education was under Elmer Bernstein, a fantastic composer favorite of mine with an incredible 239 musical references in the Internet Movie Database. Let's listen to Bear talk about his mentor of over 12 years. Elmer Bernstein is one of the most important people in the history of film music, one of the you know most important figures of people in the film history, I think. He uh, got his start in the 50s with um, 
cheesy sci-fi movies, and he uh, graduated to uh, the Ten Commandments, Man with a Golden Arm, went on to The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, in the 70s, we'll so there. he went through westerns after Magnificent Seven, then he went into comedies. He scored movies you guys might have heard, like Ghostbusters, Animal House, Airplane, Blues Brothers, Trading Spaces, and then he went into dramas. He started working in 1950. He was the first composer ever to make a career last 50 years in history. Wow. Because everybody before him was in the early stages of sound movies. They came in when they were established. So they started scoring when they were 40 or 50. Exactly. So he hit it when he was young and worked, and he died uh, last year uh, at 82. And now for the poser for later in this podcast. In the main theme to Battlestar Galactica is the Gayatri Mantra. Do you know what language it is being sung in and what the translation means? Stay tuned, and I'll be back with the answer later in this podcast. Excellent work, as always, Vartok. Uh, great uh, information there on Bear McCreary. Uh, I, I didn't realize that they had been using basically a single composer for the show. I thought it was a mix of uh, people, but that's really fascinating stuff. And I've always loved the you know the music on Babylon or. Am I saying, did I say Babylon 5? Or, no, Battlestar, sorry. Battlestar or Babylon, they, they kind of sound the same. Sorry, on, on Battlestar, I've always really enjoyed the music just because it's it's a little different. It's not the typical kind of sci-fi music you would get uh, or that we've had, although, you know, Trek has had some great music and other sci-fi shows. It's just different, but it really, uh, it really seems to fit the show and the mood of it uh, just perfectly. And uh, I, Bear seems to be doing a great job with that. And uh, like I said, it, it's very enjoyable. I've got to pick up some of those soundtracks. And uh, thanks very much for that. And we'll be playing uh, the rest uh, in the answer to uh, Vartok's little poser there uh, later in the podcast. The next uh, little segment I wanted to throw in here is something new. And uh, I kind of came up with this idea as I was sitting uh, in the airport the other day waiting for my airplane. And I heard this song uh, playing uh, over the uh, the loudspeakers, you know, little airport music. Although they had some pretty good music playing, this song uh, has always been a favorite of mine, and it led me to think of a new short little segment I want to throw on the podcast. I've always been a big, big, huge fan of opening credit sequences and, and uh, opening theme songs, or or whatever you want to call them, that open up uh, sci-fi and fantasy TV shows. Uh, even growing up, I would record these little opening themes. Uh, on my little cassette tape recorder and save them on, on all kinds of different shows, not even just sci-fi and fantasy shows, but but cartoons and dramas and comedies. And I don't know, there was just something about those little tunes and jingles for those those intros that I always loved. And I always really felt like uh, the, the best ones set the mood so much and so well for the show itself. And, and that continues even to this day. So what I thought is each week I, w- I would just you know, pull kind of a random one out. There's no particular order to these. Of course, I'll be uh, focusing on a lot of the ones that are my favorites. But uh, this one was the song that I had heard in the airport, and it led me to, again, uh, decide to throw this uh, uh, segment into the show. So uh, without any further ado, the first one that I wanted to focus on is from the excellent uh, show that was on the WB, ran from uh, 1999 to 2002, only lasted three seasons. Uh, 
this show was about basically uh, aliens in high school was kind of the way you could look at it. And uh, if that's enough information, well, let me play the uh, theme song to it uh, for you now. And I'll come back and kind of talk about that a little and uh, and wrap up this short little new segment for you all on Treks in Sci-Fi. So here we go with uh, opening theme song number one for this segment. Well, if you didn't guess it, that is the opening theme uh, music and song uh, to the TV show Roswell, uh, an excellent show, one that I, I highly enjoyed and, and was uh, you know fairly sad when it when it went off the air after only three seasons. It kind of left a lot of things open, but uh, it was a great show when it was on and, and when it lasted. I, just really, really uh, some wonderful things in it, and I always really love that song. That song is by the group Dido. It is called Here With Me, and it, it again, I thought that the credit sequence that they used and the music really, really fit the mood of the show. I just uh, They treated it a very, very seriously, and, uh, you know, these, these kids that were trying to fit in and find, you know, find out about their origins and everything, and for those uh, that have never seen Roswell, give it a shot. It's all out, uh, all seasons are out on DVD now, so there is the first uh, segment in this new podcast. Uh, segment <laughs> this new segment for treks and sci-fi and opening uh credit sequences if you have any suggestions for this i'm, I'm open for those treksf at gmail.com send them in and uh we'll be doing a new one each week a couple other uh, little bits of information and news uh i just wanted to say that uh, all of uh, the t-shirts have been sent uh earlier last week last monday uh, actually so if you are in the united states i would assume and guess that you should have your t-shirt in hand by now those uh, that I shipped uh, overseas or Canada might take a little bit longer, but uh, I wanted to let everyone know uh, those have all been mailed out. Uh, for some reason, within about the next week or so, if you don't get your shirt, please shoot me an email and we'll look into it. But I think uh, uh, you should be receiving them uh, very soon if you haven't already. When you're not listening to Treks in Sci-Fi and our friend Rico... Please listen to the Anomaly Podcast. You can find us online at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Yes, uh, and again, if you haven't uh, checked out uh, Jen and Angela's podcast over there at anomalypodcast.com, you should give yourself uh, a great treat and check them out. I would highly recommend it. A couple of geek girls talking about Babel. Or, I keep doing that today. Stop that. Uh, uh, stop it. Stop it. Uh, talking about Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek, other things that they enjoy. So check them out. All right. Now it's time to get into our, our main topic for this week, a Babylon 5. And to start out with, let's go back in time to some uh, of the early narration that started off uh, the series back uh, years ago, uh, more than 10 years now. 
at the very beginning of Babylon 5. So listen to this, and I'll be back, and we'll start getting into this very excellent sci-fi TV series. I was there at the dawn of the third age of mankind. It began in the Earth year 2257, with the founding of the last of the Babylon stations, located deep in neutral space. It was a port of call for refugees, smugglers, businessmen, diplomats and travelers from a hundred worlds. Be a dangerous place, but we accepted the risk because Babylon 5 was our last best hope for peace. Babylon 5 was a dream given form, the dream of a galaxy without war, and species from different worlds could live side by side in mutual respect. Babylon 5 was the last of the Babylon stations. This is its story. Yes, Babylon 5. There you listen to uh, Lando, uh, who played was played by Peter Jurassic, I think is how you say his name. Uh, great actor in that role. So Babylon 5, uh, let's give you some uh, basic background first, and then we'll uh, talk about the show and give you my thoughts. Uh, it uh, started with a pilot movie in uh, February of 1993, and then the regular series, The Five Seasons, were broadcast from uh, about January of 1994 to 1999. They uh, eventually had a spin-off series, Crusade, which only lasted, unfortunately, which I thought was an interesting uh, series and concept, that only lasted for 13 episodes. And they've had a uh, recent straight-to-DVD movie that came out uh, about a year ago, uh, July of 2007, uh, that uh, I have watched as well. So uh, that is uh, the basic idea. Uh, season one, the, the interesting and nice thing they did this is that uh, each season comprised uh, like one year or so. So it followed a kind of a nice pattern. Season one was 2258, season two, 2259, and it ended up at season five, with uh, which was year 2262. Uh, let's just give you some, uh, for those that know Babylon 5, you'll know a lot of this, but some things I will try to give you, uh, things you might not know. J. Michael Straczynski, who is just a great writer, uh, was the creator and writer and directed a lot of the episodes. He was the heart and soul of Babylon 5. Uh, it was his baby uh, from start to finish. And uh, when he set about trying to create this uh, TV series, he had a, a few goals in mind, uh, things that hadn't been done before on network TV and sci-fi specifically. He had worked on a lot of projects and things that had sort of dwindled and failed. And and what what Joe uh, or J. Michael Straczynski kind of started to realize is that uh, part of the problem was planning. He he felt that uh, shows just sort of started out with a strong concept and maybe some interesting episodes, but they didn't have sort of a long-range plot or goal. They just kind of wandered around and uh, he felt that that really hurt them and eventually led to their demise. So when he set out to create Babylon 5, he had a different strategy in, in mind. Uh, he decided that he he would set it for this you know kind of five-year plan, and uh, he had it all outlined out. He knew what was going to happen, uh, you know, the, not the exact specifics, but, I mean, he basically had a plan in mind for each season, what was going to happen, how what characters were going to be involved, how they were going to change, what new people would come in. 
and how the show would evolve over time and, and the different stories that would, they would get into. The other thing that he did was rather than create a, uh, another sci-fi show where there was some kind of a ship that would go off and explore strange new worlds, is he set it on a fixed station and had the drama and action and everything basically come to them and revolve around the station, kind of like Deep Space Nine. And we'll get into the discussion of the and the comparisons between Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 a little bit. And, and there was a little bit of a controversy there as well. Let me uh, let me read this little bit uh, that I found online about uh, what Joe had to say about the series. Uh, this is what he had to say when he was creating the show. Once I had the locale, I began to populate it with characters and sketch out directions that might be interesting. I dragged out my notes on religion, philosophy, history, sociology, psychology, science, the ones that did make my head explode, and started stitching together a crazy quilt pattern that eventually formed a picture. Once I had that picture in my head, once I knew what the major theme was, the rest fell into, into place. All at once, I saw the full five-year story in a flash, and I frantically began scribbling notes down. Uh, that's from uh, the year around 1995 when he was first beginning work on the series itself. It, uh, it shows you that, uh, again, he had a, a specific goals and a specific outline and plan for this series, unlike, again, a lot of other TV shows, and not just other TV uh, in the sci-fi genre, but just TV in general. And and I think this served him very well. The show was strong from start to finish. It got even stronger, I'd say, by the middle of it, when things, when a lot of the elements that he had set into motion started to come into place and uh, really started to take off with the different characters and what was going on in the story and everything. Uh, he also was a big fan of, of some very classic works of science fiction, the Foundation, found, excuse me, the Foundation series by Asimov, Childhood's End, Lord of the Rings, Dune, and you know these big epic, uh, sweeping sci-fi and fantasy kinds of novels and adventures. And he he was really a little dismayed and wondered why you know they had never attempted or tried something like this on network television. Well, you know there are some. People who would say network uh, TV is not the place for that kind of stuff. You can do it maybe in, in large movies uh, like they did with the Lord of the Rings movies. But but people for network TV aren't used to that kind of epic ongoing storyline. You know, they also are interested in syndicating TV shows. And Babylon 5, even though it has shown up in syndication and I think done okay, is a very difficult show uh, to, to syndicate because you have to be very careful about how you uh, order the episodes. They have to be shown pretty much in sequence. This is a, a continuing storyline. You can't just sort of take these episodes out of context and, and show them willy-nilly, uh, e- even though, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of series are able to do that. Uh, this show you really can't do that with, and it would become very confusing to the viewer. So that's probably one of the reasons why uh, TV networks and things try not to do that kind of uh, uh you know, or do that kind of approach for their series. So that uh, is a little bit of background and give you some idea of why and, and the wherefore. He also wanted to keep the science very real. He didn't want any uh, goofy characters, really. Everyone was fairly serious. He didn't want to have, you know, little kids and, and, and you know, chimpanzees or whatever. Uh, again, he treated this very respectfully. Uh, he wanted the show to sort of mirror the real world and kind of teach a lesson to a degree in, in, in some cases. And I, I think Straczynski with this series, it was a lot, I sort of like a the way Gene Roddenberry might have done Trek if he had done it later, uh, I think. It, it was a very much like, you know, Gene had done with Star Trek and, and tried to use the characters to 
put forth some kind of a message that he was trying to to get across to the audience. So uh, let's play a clip here. Let's play a clip between uh, a couple of the characters, and then I'll come back and talk some more about the show. We cannot turn our back on tradition. Oh, damn tradition! Kieran may die because our glorious tradition values wealth and power over love. My shoes are too tight. Excuse me? Something my father said. He was old, very old at the time. I went into his room and he was sitting alone in the dark, crying. So I asked him what was wrong. And he said, my shoes are too tight, but it doesn't matter because I have forgotten how to dance. I never understood what that meant until now. My shoes are too tight. And I have forgotten how to dance. I don't understand. Nor should you. That's a great uh, character moment there between Alondo and Veer, his aide, uh, from I think in the first season. It's a, uh, it's it, you know, Babylon Five was just had some excellent characters, and you, and you really got to know and care about them. Probably uh, uh, almost the, the the most I think I've you know as far as shows, maybe not the most, but I, you really start to learn what these characters are all about. And you know, and, and Lando is basically saying there that. He's gotten older, and he's he's lost track of what's really important in life, and and, and what it means. Veer is trying to plead for um, this person, and, and Londo, you know, he's so caught up in you know the you know the acquisition of power and wealth, and and, and he doesn't care too much about other things anymore, and, and he hasn't really kind of taken time anymore to kind of smell the roses is another expression that you could use. You know, just to enjoy life a bit, and uh, he tells Veer there, you know, that Veer doesn't understand what he means, and and, and Lando tells him, yeah, you know, you it, it's good that you don't basically, and you shouldn't because you're young, and you haven't sort of become jaded and forgotten what what's important in life, and and that's uh, you know, it's it's a real good message, and it's it's one of the kinds of things that they regularly did and and talked on in in Babylon Five, and uh, one of the things I really enjoyed, and and besides even some of this character stuff, you know. Babylon 5 just had a great uh, set of ongoing story arcs. You know, they did this whole thing called the Shadow Wars, which lasted for, uh, uh, you know, the middle part of the show just about. And there was this evil, you know, these evil alien race out there called the Shadows, and they were out to kind of destroy the galaxy and take it over. And, uh, you know, Earth and humanity and their allies tried to fight back. And eventually, you know, people that were enemies, just like the Klingons and the Federation, eventually become friends to fight off this common foe and uh it, there was sort of a, a a fairly large mystical element also to Babylon 5 which was kind of enjoyable and kind of refreshing which Star Trek and and most other sci-fi series have never really explored that aspect and, and that kind of thing very much they've been always fairly scientific and kind of sterile maybe in a way and, and didn't get into sort of that mystical and 
and you know religious kind of element there was there was a fair amount of religion you know the different aliens on uh, Babylon 5 on the station all had their own beliefs and and that came up quite a bit during the series so uh, I'm going to play another clip for you the uh, the actors on this show were were just excellent every one of them and uh, Bruce Boxleitner uh, he played uh, the the Sheridan character you know captain and then I think eventually commander or whatever rank they gave him uh, on uh, Babylon 5. It was interesting. They had Michael O'Hare as Sinclair, this other commander who was in the show for the first season, and then in season two for the rest of it, uh, Bruce came in as this a little more Kirk-like, a little more action-oriented uh, uh, commander of Babylon 5, and I think he did a great job. I really liked his uh, take on, on Sheridan's character. And this clip I'm going to play for you now is between uh, Sheridan and Delin. Uh, who uh, is a Minbari, also um, a, a Mira, her name is Mira Furlan, I think is how you say it. Uh, she uh, plays the French woman, or did play, the, or sorry, whatever, uh, played the French woman on uh, the TV series Lost. Uh, she was on this show as this alien, Delin, uh, who became eventually involved with uh, Sheridan. So listen to this clip between the two of them. Then I will tell you a great secret, Captain. Perhaps the greatest of all time. The molecules of your body are the same molecules that make up this station and the nebula outside that burn inside the stars themselves. We are star stuff. We are the universe made manifest, trying to figure itself out. And as we have both learned, sometimes the universe requires a change of perspective. I guess uh, Sheridan was just standing there in that clip. He didn't really say much, but I have another one later when he's he's uh, speaking a little bit in it. Uh, the uh, I like that uh, you know the the idea that everyone is made of of elements and bits from stars, and it, it's kind of again a kind of a mystical thing and, and a, you know scientific thing to a degree, I guess. Also, but uh, it's nice that they uh, put that kind of thing in Babylon Five. Uh, the character of Delin was kind of interesting. She uh, went underwent a transformation. She was much more alien-like at the beginning, and then in in during the show and during the series, she became a little more human. She went through this sort of uh, transformation uh, from uh, a Minbari to more of a human Minbari kind of hybrid. The uh, thing that I found out about that, and I think I'd heard about this before, is that what they were also thinking of doing, but they didn't do this, was they were also thinking of actually changing her sex. She was going to be uh, very uh, stare. Uh, well, how, how should I say this? Very um, male-looking at the beginning. They were going to make her up with the Minbari makeup, and she wasn't going to be looking very female. And they were going to tone a lot of her female features down uh, when she first appeared as Delin, uh, and make her again, like I said, look male. And then when she went underwent the transformation to more human, she would not only become more human-looking, but she would also become female. And they decided to uh, to drop that idea. I guess maybe that was a little too much. They didn't think that they needed it. I'm not sure why, but uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting bit of trivia. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who uh, worked on this series, uh, people don't maybe know that this this show basically put him through the ringer. I mean, he wrote like 92 out of the 110 episodes of Babylon 5. I mean, that's just completely unprecedented. 
he also wrote the um, the you know he wrote the stories for those, but he also did the actual scripts, the full out scripts for um, all forty four episodes in the third and fourth season uh, for the show. I mean that that is a feat that's never ever been accomplished before in network TV. They they don't really no one you know single handedly writes two seasons worth of a TV show. It's just you know the the way they produce these these shows. Are so is so grueling each week after week. You know, and most shows have staffs of writers for the show. You know, people that are creating stories, and sometimes outside writers come in. And just to have one guy write two whole seasons worth of the scripts is just unreal. And uh, you know, I just I think the guy is just a genius. He he's into writing a lot of other things now. He actually is writing a lot of Marvel comic books as well. Uh, so it's uh, the guy you know, can write definitely. And there are a lot of uh, people that had worked on Trek that actually became involved also in Babylon 5, DC Fontana, uh, Peter David, uh, David Gerald, Harlan Ellison was creative consultant on the show. A lot of familiar Trek people. Uh, A little bit on the visuals of Babylon 5. This was uh, one of the uh, earliest shows that used uh, a very um, big amount, almost exclusively really, uh, CGI, computer graphics for the TV shows. It was uh, one of the first of the TV shows in sci-fi in that that used uh, these kinds of effects for the show. And I think they're still pretty holding up uh, pretty well today, even though the kind of uh, computers, you know, just good old Pentiums and Amiga-based machines using video toasters at first, uh, that kind of program created a lot of the effects for the Babylon Station, the ships and the battles. And they had some amazing visuals and some amazing battles on the show throughout its run. So, um, well, let's go on. I've got a few kind of humorous clips. This one is uh, Andreas, I can't say his last name, Ketsulis, Ketsulis, a great character actor in a lot of movies, TV shows. He played the uh, sort of reptilian-looking alien character, uh, Jakar. You know, all these uh, different characters were sort of ambassadors on the station on Babylon 5, and Jakar... Uh, there's this very fun scene here that he plays with another um, of his race that uh, they're eating this a certain dish. Well, let me play the clip for you, and, uh, and I'll be back in a minute. I thank you for this, Picard. I've been on the run for so long I haven't tasted fresh food for months. It's not the hero's welcome you deserve, uh. but it will do for now. Breen. You've managed to import Breen from Homeworld. How? It uh, isn't actually Breen. The smell, the taste. It's an earth food. They are called Swedish meatballs. It's a strange thing, but every sentient race has its own version of these Swedish meatballs. I suspect it's one of those great universal mysteries which will either never be explained, which would drive you mad if you ever learned the truth. (laughs) The thing about Swedish meatballs I thought was pretty amusing. I like that a lot, Uh, yeah, uh, Andreas there plays uh, Jakar, who is uh, the uh, head of sort of the the Narn uh, delegation on Babylon 5. Um, they basically had, uh, you know, these different delegations, these different species uh, trying to live together and form this uh, peaceful alliance on, on the station. They had the Narn there with Jakar. They had the Centauri, which uh, Londo, you heard earlier, he was sort of their leader. They had the Vorlons, um, the Minbari, which uh, Delin was the leader there. And, of course, the humans with Sheridan and, and, and a lot of the other uh, people running the station itself. Uh, 
and then uh, other different races and, and beings would pop in at different times uh, uh, during out the during the course of the series. Uh, again, they had a, a neat thing each season. Different um, plots and different storylines were taking place, and they changed the opening credits each season. And I wanted to kind of sprinkle those in as well. Uh, you heard a little bit of Londo in the early ones and the, the kind of uh, speech there that was given. The next uh, little uh, credit sequence uh, theme that I'm going to play for you, this one is the season three one, and I, I've always liked this one a lot. So listen to this. It was the year of fire. The year of destruction. The year we took back what was ours. It was the year of rebirth. The year of great sadness. The year of pain. The year of joy. It was a new age. It was the history. It was the year everything changed. The year is 2261. The place, Babylon 5. Some great music on Babylon 5, just like a lot of uh, sci-fi series that I enjoy that uh, was by uh, done by Christopher Franck, I think is F-R-A-N-K-E. Uh, he was of Tangerine Dream. He was hired to compose all five seasons of this series and uh, you know did some of that opening credit music as well. And uh, really good. Uh, Stuart Copeland had done some music for the uh, pilot movie, the, the first movie, uh, Stuart from The Police, but uh, when the show was picked up as a regular series, they brought in uh, Christopher Frank for the uh, uh, scoring of the show itself throughout the, the run of it. So uh, great music there and uh, great opening uh, sequence as well. I've mentioned some of the uh, cast so far. Uh, they had, again, a great cast. Uh, Claudia Christian uh, played uh, sort of the second-in-command of Babylon 5. Uh, she played the character of Susan Ivanova. Really uh, a great role for her, great series, I think, for her in her uh, her history of, uh, you know, acting and all that. And uh, she had a good rapport with the other characters and, and really fitting well. One interesting little Trek, Trek trivia tr- tidbit is that uh, Claudia eventually uh, auditioned also for the role of Seven on Nine on Star Trek Voyager. There was a lot of overlap. You know, Andreas, who played Jakar uh, on B5, he also uh, showed up as Tomalak. On, on the the Romulan commander on Trek, uh, Bill Mumio, of course, was uh, on Babylon Five, kind of uh, Delin's little aide. Uh, he uh, ends up, of course, he's uh, got a little bit of a Trek connection, of course, more on Lost in Space. But he was a uh, a Starfleet engineer in an episode. Uh, even Major Barrett, uh, you know, Gene's wife, ended up on Babylon Five. Uh, she was a she played this uh, seer who was uh, kind of a, a mystic. 
and she was the one that foretold that Londo's ascension, uh, Londo would eventually ascend to the throne of uh, of Centauri. So uh, that was uh, her character. I think was called Lady Morella. Um, but anyway, again, uh, a lot of Trek uh, overlap. And I guess now is a good time we can talk a little bit about the the controversy a little between uh, Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. Babylon 5 kind of premiered and came out not too long after Deep Space Nine had begun. And, of course, there were very similar um, similar things between the two series. They both had fixed stations. They were kind of port of calls for different races that would come through. And uh, there, there was just this idea that um, Babylon 5 had sort of swiped a lot of these ideas and concepts from Trek. I've never really bought into that very much. I mean, the idea of having a station in space with aliens coming and going to it has, has been a staple in science fiction for, for decades. And, and de- you know, Deep Space Nine and Trek and the people that created that, they, they did not really, they didn't come up with that concept either. Uh, you know, there's kind of a saying that there aren't any new ideas anymore in, in Hollywood or even in making and writing books or anything that people just sort of take different ideas and kind of put their own little spin and twist on them. And that's kind of true just in general. I mean, what do you, what does anyone create a TV show or write a book about? I mean, it's things that they've seen and they've changed it around and put their own spin on it. Now there's ways to make it almost a direct copy. I don't ever feel that, that Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine were really copies of each other at all. I, I think the shows were quite different. The characters different. You know, there was a much more sweeping storyline to Babylon 5 than there was to Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine kind of got into that in the later years with the war, uh, but that only really happened in the last few seasons. Babylon 5 had that idea in mind all along, uh, and it was uh, just just a lot more of a mystical and religious element to B5 and a lot of different things like that. I mean, they had that with the... The, the the little stones and the prophets and things on on uh, Deep Space Nine, but uh, again, I I've never really thought that there was that much uh, similarities that you couldn't enjoy both, and I've never really thought one copied the other. So it, it's I think it's a it's a not the argument doesn't really hold up at least in my view. So hey, let's play another clip. This one is between uh, I think this one's Ivanova. Uh, Claudia Christian and uh, Sheridan, played by Bruce Boxleitner. So listen to this clip. Hello? Come on, I'll show you. I, I think we can make this work. Uh, John. What? Uh, don't you think I better change first? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, sorry, I, I hadn't noticed. Thanks, I'll just... Wait a minute. What do you mean you didn't notice? I mean, what am I, chop florin? Anyway, okay, granted, I don't have any interest in you. You don't have any interest in me. But if you're going to come barging in here in the middle of the night, the least you could say is, nice outfit, Ivanova, and then go on a tear. Yeah, a nice outfit, Ivanova. You're such a sweet guy. Yeah, it's a fun clip, too. The I really like the character of Ivanova. A lot of fun. Uh, they, uh, in the last, I think it was just the last season, that she kind of... Uh, I I don't know all the details. I think there was some kind of a controversy, but she was off the show, and they brought in this uh, character of uh, Elizabeth Lockley, uh, played by Tracy Scoggins, who became sort of the new second in command. Actually, she sort of basically became the captain and run, um, you know, runner of the station itself because Sheridan eventually Sheridan eventually goes into more of a political role and becomes the president of this uh, this interstellar alliance that's formed. So he becomes more of a politician. 
and Lockley comes in and becomes more of the commander of Babylon 5, the station itself. Uh, a, a lot of great characters. It's so hard to, you know, distill uh, this such a, a, a very rich and vast sci-fi show like Babylon 5 that lasted five whole seasons uh, on television into, you know, about a half hour worth of this podcast today. And uh, one thing also I wanted to say, uh, and I've still got a few clips to play, a couple that uh, you know Walter uh, Walter Koenig, who who played of course Chekhov on the original Star Trek series, had a had a very cool role as cool cool role as a psy psy cop. They had this psychic group of people uh, who who went into uh, the role of sort of these police on on Babylon Five, and he played this character called Bester on on Babylon Five, and it really fit and and worked well for him, and, and he got a finally got a chance, I think, to sort of create a new character other than Chekhov in the sci-fi realm and just a new character in general and to sort of shake off that that Star Trek uh, role and it gave him more to talk about it all the sci-fi cons as well too so I think there's a lot of people out there that that like him just as much for the role of Bester uh, as the sci-cop kind of bad guy a little bit as they do for a Chekhov in the original Star Trek series so again another overlap between uh, Trek and uh, B5. A few other little bits of uh, trivia and things. Uh, one thing the on uh, this show, the actors were um, they were never told in advance uh, what was going on with the story or their characters. Uh, each new episode was just as much a surprise for them. They they were given a script and they could just sort of read and see what was happening. I believe that's the same kind of strategy that Ron Moore does with Battlestar Galactica these days. I, I think uh, anytime I've heard them interview any of the stars of the show. And people try to ask, you know, what's coming up for Starbuck or Adama or whoever. They always say, I don't know. Uh, it's it's up to the writers. It's up to Ron Moore. We don't know any more or any sooner really than you guys do. So I think that keeps it fresh and interesting for uh, for the people. Uh, uh, one other little thing: uh, the uh, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, of course, who were running on X Files and, and and pretty popular at the time. There was this idea to bring both of them on as a duo, as a sort of a little guest bit on Babylon 5 as a couple of Psycops uh, during the uh, last season, during the fifth season of Babylon 5. But I guess they never could work out the, the timing and the details on that, so that kind of fell through. But that would have been kind of nice to see them show up in those little black uh, suits and gloves that the Psycops would wear on Babylon 5 and come aboard uh, the station and, uh, you know, just kind of breeze in and say something interesting and then leave or whatever. And back to the uh, the scripting thing, the uh, this uh, show was very tightly scripted. They basically never really ad-libbed anything uh, to any degree. You know, I'm sure there were a couple of tiny things that slipped in, but uh, script changes just didn't really happen on this show, even at the last minute. Uh, everything had to be approved through through Joe, and uh, he just, uh, you know, he ran it with really a tight ship. He just didn't want them to be saying one thing to have it conflict with, with what he had set up or what was coming up on the series. So that was uh, pretty critical for him to keep the uh, the overall story going properly. I've got to start uh, winding this up a little bit. I do want to play uh, this clip here. This is the uh, a little bit of the last uh uh, from the last episode of Babylon 5, and uh, I think it's a nice clip to play towards the end of this uh, discussion about it. This one's a couple minutes long, so listen to this, and I'll be back uh, uh, very shortly.
last of the Babylon stations. There would never be another. It changed the future, and it changed us. It taught us that we have to create the future, or others will do it for us. It showed us that we have to care for one another, because if we don't, who will? And that true strength sometimes comes from the most unlikely places. Mostly, though, I think it gave us hope that there can always be new beginnings, even for people like us. As for Delenn, every morning for as long as she lived, Delenn got up before dawn and watched the sun come up. Yeah, they really had a uh, an amazing and great season, or not just season finale, but series finale at the end of uh, season five of Babylon Five. Uh, one of the best ever, I think, for a show to uh, to end. And again, I think it shows just how well Joe had put together the show and and had it follow this uh, this outline. There's so much to talk about. Uh, you know, Richard Biggs is is Doctor Franklin. I didn't mention very much, and uh, there was a character, Jason Carter, uh, who was. Um, played this character Marcus Cole. Marcus was an interesting character. Jeff Conaway was in as Zach Allen. Jerry Doyle as Michael Garibaldi, the security officer. Uh, he was just great. Uh, I, I loved his character. Uh, I mentioned Bill Mooney as uh, Lanier, uh, Tracy Scoggins, Elizabeth Lockley, Patricia Tellman as Lita, the, the, the telepath, uh, Andrea Thompson, who was in the earlier uh, seasons as Talia, the other... Um, uh, she ends up in or is in the psych core. Uh just uh just amazing uh, cast of people in this show. Stephen First is Veer, you heard some of him. Uh just I I love this show so much and uh it's actually one of the rare series uh in, in sci fi, especially one that I like this much that I don't have on I don't have any DVDs of yet. I've got a lot of videotape of the episodes uh but I don't have anything on D V D and after covering this again for everyone I'm gonna have to do that. They've been showing up a lot on uh Amazon.com uh, for, I think I've seen them for like 20 bucks a season, which is a great deal. So uh, for those that have never tried Babylon 5, uh, you know, and you're a fan of uh, sci-fi, you know, what are you waiting for? I mean, this this is an amazing show. But I will mention that if you pick up like season one and start watching it, you won't be able to stop. You will have to buy you know, or rent uh, seasons two, three, four, and five and, and the additional movies that they've put out on DVD maybe even the Crusade series, which is an interesting interesting concept, and uh, I would have liked to have seen that go on and, and uh, see what they did with that. But uh, it's just a great show. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the true greats in sci-fi, and Joe Michael, or J. Michael Straczynski, who created it, uh, you know, my, 
my Trex and Sci-Fi t-shirt and hat off, hat are off to you for creating such an amazing cast and and story and plot and and just series in general for us to enjoy uh, over the years. So. Uh, I think that's about all I can put into it for right now. I could go on and on and on. Uh, I wanted to mention a few things. There is an excellent, uh, several excellent podcasts out there that specifically cover Babylon 5. One is uh, simply just called the Babylon Podcast. They're up to like podcast 110 or so now, and they cover uh, the show in great depth. There's uh, several other ones as well. Just go to Podcast Alley or iTunes and search for Babylon 5 in the podcast areas. And you will find uh, several great podcasts out there to cover the show. So much more than I can do in just a part of one podcast uh, on this great uh, sci-fi series. So I want to then uh, segue and turn this over to uh, the Moyers. Uh, this time Rick got his uh, his lo- lovely wife, uh, who is also a fan, I, I guess, of Babylon 5, to talk about uh, the uh, the topic for this week, uh, rather than his uh, normal uh, partner in crime, Nathan, and when they talk about Star Trek when I'm covering those episodes. So take it away, Moyers. Hi, this is Rick. And this is Amy. And this is, is the Husband, Husband and, and Wife, Wife Review. Review. Well, Rico, you are uh, overviewing Babylon 5, and uh, I'm not a real big fan of Babylon 5. I watched it and got a kick out of it, but believe it or not, my wife, Amy here, is a bigger fan, aren't you? I am, and I, I'm thinking that I haven't been heard from on Trex and Sci-Fi since about a year last ago. time this year. <laughs> and um, and I do like Sci-Fi, but I'm not usually as passionate about Sci-Fi as my husband. But I do, um, I did like Babylon Five. I haven't watched it for years now, but I think we had some old VCR fuzzy copies somewhere and in the house. I don't know if we finally got rid of them, but yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, why did you enjoy it? What was your favorite part about Babylon 5? You know, at first, I didn't really like it. But the more I watched it, and the puzzle pieces started coming together. Like, I'm hoping they'll come together and lost someday. <laughs> but um, it, I think I appreciated, just like um, Dune that was written so many decades ago, it had a really good storyline that was... Serialized. Yeah, but it was serialized, but it had a storyline that interwoven, it interwove between like for thousands of years that forward and backward and. Yeah, soap opera, space opera. Well, yeah. But with a theme behind it. But it had, it was deeper than soap opera. Yeah. It actually was planned out, I understand, five years. I mean, they planned out the whole plot line before they filmed the first episode so it actually had some substance and some and continuity continuity and um some deeper themes than just a typical space opera yeah okay what yeah. were some of your favorite characters do you remember um i liked ambassador delenn yeah she's on loss well was until she got well spoiler alert spoiler alert until she got shot yes she did that was anyway, sad I, yeah. I think she's a very fantastic actress yeah you liked her what who I else did you her. like um, I, I liked um, Bruce Boxletter, who played Sheridan. Yeah. And it was funny because at the end, being a little House in the Prairie fan, they mm-hmm. had um, Melissa, Melissa Gilbert. Gilbert, who played Laura Ingalls, mm-hmm. is married to Bruce Bruce Boxletter. Was it her his wife on the show? Yeah, but the one that was supposedly dead, but then possessed by a shadow and 
came back and he could tell that it really wasn't her and it was kind of weird but okay well if somebody's listening would you recommend watching or getting the dvds and watching babylon 5 if they've never seen it yeah if if you could watch the whole thing at, at first it may be a little confusing so I think they would have the advantage now of having box sets of being able to right. catch up quickly, whereas we were kind of like, uh-huh. Every week, huh? Every, <laughs> kind of like we do with Lost now. But, yeah. yeah. But I think um, it was kind of fascinating. I, I think it, I would enjoy watching the DVDs now after seeing. I would pick up on things. Well, Mother's Day's coming up. Um, I got new dishes. <laughs> So would you recommend it then to maybe a female listener out there that's listening? Would you recommend them? They, they, it's not just a guy show. Yeah. If you like a little bit deeper storyline than a lot of B, B sci-fi, you know, like with the giant lizards and stuff. <laughs> What's if, wrong with giant lizards? <laughs> but if you like a little deeper subject matter, like like if you like Dune, something like that that has um, – a matter of fact, plotline. we're on Trex and Sci-Fi. Um, I enjoy the – that um um the I'm, one I'm drawing a blank. Okay. What? The one the the um not Voyager, the Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um I enjoyed part of that um show. It it was unique in that it had a, a storyline that thread through that the, threaded through the whole thing. Yeah, that threaded through the whole thing with yeah. the um emissary. Right. And that whole thing with the prophets and the emissary. And okay. the same way with Dune and same way with Babylon 5. So if you like things like that, like, um, yeah, yeah, like Deep Space Nine and Dune, you'd like Babylon, Babylon 5. 5. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So how many stars would you give the series then? Uh, four or uh, one to five stars, five being the best? You know, I would give it a four, and the only reason I don't give it a five is because there was some stuff that was a little cheesy in it, you know? Yeah, but sorry. that's how it is all the time with sci fi. Great. Get, you get some cheese. I'll give it a three. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, this is Rick. And this is Amy. And this has been the Husband and, and Wife, Wife Review. Review. Well, thank you both uh, for taking the time to uh, send in your thoughts on Babylon 5. Yeah, I agree, Amy. It's uh, It can be a little confusing at times, but you're absolutely right with uh, being able to get DVD sets now and watch it kind of in a in a big chunk, you know, spend a weekend or a week or two watching a season and then kind of digesting that and moving on, I think... Uh, would improve a lot, and uh, I think it's uh, people would appreciate uh, what uh, Straczynski was trying to do with the show. So, again, uh, thanks for your comments. I've got now the uh, last uh, or the answer portion to Avartok's uh, earlier musical entry about Beer McCreary and the uh, B. Uh, I keep doing that today. Battlestar Galactica musical composer. So, here we go with that. That's a couple minutes long, and I'll come back and we'll do a quick collectible review and wrap up the show. Hi everyone, this is Vartok again with the answer to the question posed earlier about what language the Gayatri Mantra is being sung in and what the translation means. If you guessed the language to be Sanskrit, you'd be correct. The translation for the Sanskrit word Gayatri is song or hymn. There are many translations to the mantra, but the most common one is as follows. O God, Thou art the giver of life, remover of pain and sorrow, the bestower of happiness. O creator of the universe, may we receive thy supreme sin-destroying light. May thou guide our intellect in the right direction. So, 
During the next episode of Battlestar Galactica, maybe you'll be more cognizant of that song that's being sung. The track playing right now is track number 24, titled Passacaglia from Season 1. Again, it is a favorite of mine and many. I was amazed at how much people noticed the Irish and Celtic influence because, for me, it's just another culture. I'm already, people are like, well, you know, you have that kind of like... You know, Arabic thing or whatever. And I'm well, like, you have well, the taiko drums, right? well, I have taikos from Japan. I have African drums. I have, you know, I have stuff from all over the world. I just didn't have a lot of Western things. And that's what I think right. people caught. It caught their ears here. And by the way, I could not find anywhere how Bear got his first name. It just wasn't covered in any of the online material. Maybe I can get him to answer that in the next few weeks via his blog. Well, that's it for this music and sci-fi segment, and now back to you, Rico. Thanks again, Vartok, for doing that. Uh, really very interesting stuff. Uh, again, I'm a huge musical uh, fan of when it's used so well in, in like Babylon 5 and, and other TV series and movies, and this is just another uh, in the long list of things I need to pick up on uh, CD or, or download online one of the musical uh, sites. Great thing to uh, to tell us all about that stuff. I, I Babylon Fire. Ah, gosh darn it. <laughs> Excuse me, everyone. I keep doing that today. Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica. Ugh. I think I picked the wrong week to com- combine those two. But, you know, there's it's interesting how there there's a lot of similarities between the two and, and the, the interesting music that they use, and, and a lot of the religious and mystical elements for both shows, and, and the idea of this overall very uh, involved story arc that both shows did. So I, I guess maybe it's not so bad that I combined them in this particular podcast like that. Uh, I, I want to talk about a collectible real briefly. I, I haven't had a chance uh, last week to do one, I know, so I, I definitely wanted to get one in this week. This, uh, what I want to talk about this time is a Harry Potter collectible. I don't think I've talked about this before. Uh, it is a collection of wands. These uh, are, are produced by the, the Noble Collection. Uh, they've put out a lot of different neat Harry Potter collectibles, uh, and I have a few of them. This is a collection of wands that were seen in the, uh, the fourth movie, uh, or also in the, I guess, fourth book, or read about in the fourth book. This is from the Goblet of Fire uh, movie. Uh, and the way the wands looked in the films are, are the way they reproduce them here. They're one-to-one scale. They come in a nice little set in a little case that you can get. Uh, I haven't looked in a while. I'll have to look it up again. I'm not sure if they were—I got these around the time of that film, and I am not sure if they're still available directly from Noble or if you have to go to eBay or not. Uh, I will try to find out and put that information in the podcast notes. But this is a nice set. It comes, uh, like I said, it comes with its own little uh, display case. They all sit on these little uh, holders, and you can look at the wands real well. It's always interesting, I thought, in how the different wands look for the different characters in the Harry Potter movies. I like how they're all a little unique and a little different, that they're not all using the same kind of a wand, and they have a personality. And just like they do in the books, there's some meaning to that a little bit, and the way the wands are uh, fitted towards the owner and uh, when they're first uh, purchased at the wand shop and Ollivander's, is that how you say it? Ollivander's wand shop, or I think there's other ones in, 
in Diagon Alley. Uh, just a great, uh, you know, series of movies and books. Really enjoyed the Harry Potter, the whole saga, and uh, I always wanted to have some of the collectibles, and the wands are a really good start. You can also buy wands from Noble uh, of the just, you know, individual type in a nice little uh, bl- a little box, very much like you see in the movies, a uh, little kind of lined box that the wand sits down in. So, And it's kind of inexpensive, really, if you do it that way. I think usually around $30, $35 for each individual wand, approximately. So uh, they're all made, uh, they're, they're kind of not really wood. Uh, they're kind of a wood uh, resin or plastic composite. But when you're holding them, they have a nice little weight to them, and they're finished well, and they kind of look wood-like, I, I, I guess you could call it. I, I think it's a, probably be too expensive for them to be completely wood. And I also think they have a... Uh, they put some kind of a maybe a slight, very, very tiny diameter metal core in the wands to keep them uh, a little sturdier as well. So, uh, But very nicely done uh, and uh, a very nice thing for a Harry Potter fan to have. So that is the uh, collectible for this week. Okay, folks, uh, this uh, podcast is just about over. I, I hope everyone's enjoyed all the different things we talked about this week and looked at in Babylon 5. Again, uh, I would just urge everyone, give it a shot if you haven't in a while, or even if you did give it a little bit of a shot and kind of went, eh, eh, that's not really in, in you know, for me or whatever, uh, rent some of the DVDs or pick up Season 1. Uh, the sets are fairly inexpensive now, and give it a try. I, I think you'll enjoy it if you're a fan of... Uh, this space saga kind of uh, storytelling. So with that, I'm going to get out of here. I will uh, post up on the website, uh, treksinsci-fi.com, and what next week's show will be about, probably Trek episode again, but uh, you never know. Check it out and and keep an eye on the website. Uh, Email me anything you might want or reviews you have. Uh, I think I've covered everything I needed to. I always get to this part on the show and think I'm forgetting something but uh and hey if you get a chance throw up a review on itunes or podcast alley for the for the treks in sci-fi show and for myself i always appreciate those uh itunes it's always great to see some new reviews up there so i'm gonna end the show and uh take us out with i think the last uh season's babylon 5 opening credit sequence so uh, i'll play that and uh i'm out of here everyone have a great week talk to you again next time bye bye and so it begins. There is a hole in your mind. What do you want? No one here is exactly what he appears. Nothing's the same anymore. Commander Sinclair is being reassigned. Why don't you eliminate the entire non-owner? Why should that great hand reach you out of the star? Who are you? President Clark has signed a decree today declaring... These orders have forced us to declare independence. That's right. People get off their encounter suit and butts and do something. Why do Zahadu? Why are you here? Do you have anything worth living for? Think of the beautiful city of Giants in the plane. Now get the hell out of our We are here to place President Clark under arrest. This has been a Rick Dusty Podcast production.